0: On April 13, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted an event entitled Reinventing Social Democracy, Sanders, Corbyn, and beyond. The discussion centered around the particular challenges facing social democrats or the millennial inheritors of the social democratic tradition in the US, UK, and beyond. The conversation explored emerging opportunities for experimentation within social democratic politics and the wider ecosystem which surrounds it, including the interplay between NGOs, advocacy organizations, campaigns, and candidates. Speakers included Jesse Littlewood, adjunct lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of digital at Common Cause, Quinton Main, assistant professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, and Catherine Pereira, UK-US Fulbright scholar and visiting fellow at the Ash Center. The conversation was moderated by Marshall Gans, senior lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. Good afternoon. Uh, yes,
1: good afternoon. Can we please try that again? <laughs> <laughs> good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> All right, good. It's not that late that everybody should be so tired. Uh, my name is Marshall Gans, and I'd like to welcome you to this panel on Reinventing Social Democracy. And you're going to be present at that historic <laughs> moment. Uh, Since the late 19th century, uh, the social democratic vision has been a major source of egalitarian, inclusive, and participatory political, economic, and social policy. From the modest uh, American form of the New Deal, Fair Deal, New Frontier, and especially great society, to far more developed versions in Canada, Australia, Western Europe, and especially uh, Scandinavia a democratic egalitarian vision in sharp contrast with the state socialism embraced by the communist movement elsewhere. Since the 1970s, however, this vision has been under assault by an increasingly aggressive vision, often described as a kind of neoliberalism, that argues superiority of market means over political means, of private choices over public choices, and the pursuit of individual wealth over social goods and which has coincided with the galloping in e- economic inequality, which is responsible, at least in part, for many of the particularly interesting political dynamics during this most unusual election year. Our panel will explore ways to respond to this challenge, socially, politically, and institutionally. So let me introduce the members of our panel. We'll introduce all of them now, and then uh, they'll, they'll speak one by one. Each, each person will have ten minutes, uh, and then we'll open up. To discussion, first uh, to the far left, so to speak. Um, <laughs> not really. I don't know. Uh, uh, Quentin Maine. Uh, I guess it'll be revealed. I, uh, yeah. Uh, Quentin Maine uh, grew up in County Down, Northern Ireland, uh, as he says, right through the Troubles. Uh, his father delivered bread while his mother ran a catering company, eventually running a guest house and a restaurant. He did undergraduate work at Oxford, where he read French and German literature, and then, of course, earned a PhD in politics from Princeton University, uh, writing a dissertation um, entitled The Satisfied Citizen, Participation, Influence, and Public Perceptions of Democratic Performance, which won the American Political Science uh, Association's uh, 2011 Ernest B. Haas Best Dissertation Award in European Politics. As well as the 2011 Best Dissertation Award in Urban Politics. He is currently working on a book project based on his dissertation explaining why some societies are more content than others with the overall functioning of their political systems. He's particularly interested in how the design and reform of, po- of democratic poli- political institutions affects how citizens think and act politically. Uh, Quentin is assistant professor of public policy here at the Kennedy School of Government. Let's give Quentin a welcome applause. (laughs) To his right is uh, uh, Catherine Pereira. Uh, Catherine grew up in, I'm going to say this wrong, Aylesbury?
2: Aylesbury.
1: (laughs) Aylesbury. Aylesbury. Buckinghamshire, just outside London. Uh, Her father was a history teacher. Uh, the first in his family to go to university, and taught at the same state school for 34 years. Her mother was a teacher and then a youth worker in small rural communities, and the first woman employee of the local council to return full time after maternity leave. Her real background, she says, however, is Irish and Roman Catholic from Belfast. So note the seating arrangement we have over here. Uh, she, She holds a BBC and DIP law. Uh, from City University London, an MA Honours First Class in History from Balliol College uh, at Oxford. Uh, from to 2006 to 2010, she practiced as a barrister at law, specializing in education and employment law, gaining particular expertise in discrimination law. She stood for Parliament in 2010 after which she became the chief executive of Movement for Change, uh, where she recruited, trained, and developed a team of organizers who conducted campaigns leading to policy change on living wage, payday lending, and other issues. She left Movement for Change following the recent election and joined us here uh, as a U.S.-U.K. Fulbright scholar and visiting fellow here at the Ash Center, where I've had the privilege of working with her as she pursues her interest in participatory politics, political philosophy, and the moral <laughs> challenges of representative office. And in particular, women's political engagement. So let's welcome <laughs> And to my left, Jesse Littlewood. Uh, uh, Jesse grew up in Portland, Oregon, where his father is a self-employed sign maker and his mother was a zookeeper uh, before becoming a technical writer for Healthware Software. Since her retirement, she writes mysteries set in um, zoos, known as zoo it's
2: <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah.
1: very nice. Uh, he did his undergraduate work at Haverford College, where his senior thesis was on Saul Alinsky and Hannah Arendt. Um, served for many years as a grassroots organizer with the Green Corps on environmental concerns. Uh, became the director of strategy and campaigns with Echo and Company, where he developed online strategy for Public Interest Network, the Sierra Club, America's Promise Alliance, and the Webby Award-winning understood. You have to explain what Webby Award
3: is. It's the award that the people who make great websites like to give out to great websites.
1: All right. Well, congrats on the Webby Award. Um, And uh, let's see, where are we here? Um, He joined Common Cause in July of 2015 where he now leads efforts to increase the size political power and influence of common cause members and supporters through online channels including uh... the internet social media and email he also lectures on social media at the experimental college at tufts university and is serving here as an adjunct lecturer in public policy let's give jesse a welcome. take it away quick
4: great okay um, So. Um, uh... The first thing I should say is I am not a scholar of social democracy, uh, but I'm really grateful to be here today to, to have the opportunity to marshal some of the thoughts I've been having for a while about it. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation we're going to have here and uh, with you uh, this afternoon. Um, as a political scientist by training, my goal here. Uh, with my comments is really to try to identify and describe some big picture structural conditions or forces um, that are shaping social democracy currently. Um, It remains very much an open question whether the future uh, in the medium or indeed in the long term will actually be one of continuity or rather one of reinvention for social democrats here and on the other side of the pond. For the sake of today's discussion though, I'm going to assume that we're entering a period of reinvention. Um, and, in that spirit, offer a few thoughts on the challenges that social democracy and social democrats face right now, um, and for deep structural reasons will continue to face moving forward. Uh, the challenges I have in mind uh, might usefully be summarized as twin challenges of integration. These two principal forms um, these this challenge or these tw- twin challenges of integration take two principal forms: the first is the challenge of integrating across space, and the second is the challenge of integrating across social groups. The first challenge is fundamentally one of scale and scalability. The basic question to ask here is, what is the scale at which social democrats should dedicate their resources in order to achieve electoral power and to produce particular policy outcomes? Another question is how national level social democracy should act, interact with left and right-leaning politics at the subnational level. At the very heart of this first uh, challenge and answering these questions of scale and scalability lies the thorny issue of how best to balance the pursuit of equality against the realization of autonomy. In other words, how comfortable should or could social democracy be with subnational difference? Is social democracy necessarily a national project? And what do we lose or forfeit by organizing and mobilizing to achieve central power through national level elections? So social democracy has, from its very origin, struggled with this challenge of scale and scalability and figuring out the right balance in both intrinsic terms and instrumental terms between equality on the one hand and autonomy on the other. In the period of early industrialization, for example, There were quite vigorous debates about whether socialist values would best be realized through the consolidation of a central state or from the ground up through social movements and trade unions. We see the same debates playing out anew in recent years. This is particularly obvious here in the United States, where progressives have made gains at the local and state levels, though not in all localities or all states. An important example of this is the spread of living wage ordinances, which reflect significant bottom-up grassroots organizing. Other examples include the extension of certain rights to historically marginalized and underserved populations, including undocumented workers and the LGBT community. If victories are more likely to occur at the local level moving forward, or rather in some localities, but certainly not all localities, In a period of reinvention then, what does it mean to scale up from these local level victories? What does it mean for social democracy to scale? And what could or should scaling up, um, or how could or should scaling up occur without actually undercutting the values and the virtues that we find in the grassroots processes themselves? This issue of scalability, of course, bedevils all progressives. Um, and non-progressive parties alike, but given social democracy's commitment to equality, the issue of scaling up and jurisdictional transference seems particularly pressing and interesting for thinking about social democratic reinvention. Another important aspect of the scale challenge faced by social democracy relates to the question of when or when not it is appropriate for national level actors and organizations within the broad social democracy family to intervene in subnational politics. There has been a tendency on both sides of the Atlantic for centralism and central intervention to be more the preserve of the left than the right, and for very good reason. The local was historically can still now very easily become a space of fiefdoms and deliberate, de, a deliberate marginalization rooted in government capture. That results in, of course, certain social groups being privileged over other social groups. The United States, with its troubled history of subnational authoritarianism and subnationally institutionalized racism at the local and state level, is, of course, an example in extremis of exactly this phenomenon. Given these histories of subnational exclusion, and more importantly, given the ever-present threat of exclusionary and discriminatory policies, a fundamental question then that social democracy really has to grapple with during this potential period of reinvention is when exactly um, social democracy uh, should pursue countrywide legislation, often rooted currently in top-down processes of mobilization and narrowly anchored in an electoral logic, um, or when it shouldn't. Uh, and when should the social democratic establishment get behind bottom-up processes that inevitably result in a mosaic, although potentially a temporary mosaic of policies? If social democracy is to take this issue of scale and scalability seriously in the coming years, it will likely require coming to some settled position on a number of institutional and structural reforms. If the local and subnational matter, not just instrumentally, because that's where gains are being made uh, for some groups um, and perhaps in a growing number of places, but also for intrinsic reasons, because these local places are the very places where we see autonomy and empowerment uh, maximized Key social democratic values, uh, these are key social democratic values. Then, social democrats, especially national uh, dominant social democrats, must start to have more robust debates about how current uh, central local relations can be reformed and how local and state electoral rules could be redesigned. These debates are oftentimes simply not happening. uh, And if they occur at all, they're more at the margins of social democracy or the party uh, or parties. Um, but thinking strategically and imaginatively about institutional redesign could uh, be part and parcel of this reinvention process if social democracy is to address the challenge of scale and scalability. So the second challenge. The second challenge is the challenge that I referred to a few minutes ago, which is a challenge of integrating social groups or bridging across social groups. This essentially relates to the problem social democracy democracy faces in responding simultaneously to populations with quite different sets of values and needs, differences which themselves result from the divergent structural positions of these different social groups uh, and the positions that they hold in the economy. So focusing here um, on the UK and the US, but with some broader applicability to all high-income consolidated democracies, When social Democrats currently look out to the world and think about whom to serve and who to appeal to when trying to get elected, they really do face a dilemma, and a dilemma that is here to stay for the foreseeable future. They see a divided society, or they see divided societies. Individuals and groups who are economic insiders with secure and well-paid jobs, with skills and knowledge that transfer and travel well, and individuals and groups who are economic outsiders with precarious employment, low wages, and skills and training that make it difficult for them to change their current situation. These two groups have very different needs and wants. The latter group of low-paid, precarious workers have needs and wants that seem to fit more easily with the policy positions of social democracy of the past, uh, rooted in the advancement of economic equality through material redistribution and the enhancing of labor market and social protections. The former group of better paid, better educated, more economically secure groups fit more easily uh, with the policies that appear to be more often adopted by social democrats in recent years. Uh, These policies are less about material equality and more about social inclusion, individual autonomy and post materialist values. Third way social democracy that took root across high income democracies in the 1990s and 2000s seemed to be much more about appealing to the latter group than the former group. Uh, But the rise of uh, Sanders in the United States and Corbyn in the United Kingdom, as well as new left parties like Podema in Spain or Syriza in Greece, underscore the fact that the die really hasn't uh, been cast yet for social democracy. Reinvention must therefore involve a more robust conversation within social democracy about the challenge of integrating across these social groups, of balancing policies that advance non-material inclusion with material equality, and um, this is important as part of the reinvention process because it means asking, it means social democrats have to ask themselves some serious questions about past actions and the consequences that these past actions have had. So one is the role that electoral incentives or electoral instrumentalism have played within uh, social democracy in, in, in previous years. Have we given up on bringing people together, bridging differences, and trying to change hearts and minds? Or is social democracy uh, more about meeting people where they're at and uh, winning seats as a result of that? Um, The last question, um, and the one I'll end with, um, is uh, what happens to the populations that get left behind by the public policies that have been pursued or the policy positions adopted by social democracy in recent years and to whom do they uh, turn, especially precarious uh, uh, populations? And here I'm thinking, in particular, of uh, the rise of uh, populist right-leaning parties, both here and um, on the other side of the Atlantic. Thanks so much.
2: So, is is this working? Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, So, Marshall, as I understand my brief, I need to discuss the reinvention of social democracy in 10 minutes. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Good. Right. (laughs) Okay. Fine.
1: Yep. OK, is that, is that working? Oh, yeah,
2: OK, good. I can hear myself back in it with a bit of a delay. Um, so I think discussing the reinvention of social democracy, the first question that we need to ask is why would we need to reinvent it, which is essentially what Quinton was, was exploring. Um, and the spirit of the answer that I'm going to give for the purpose of discussion is going to veer more towards the side of lively over academically complex in order to hopefully provide some food for a provocative discussion later on. Um, My answer to that question in summary therefore would be because social democracy is in trouble almost everywhere as the industrial base on which its organization, its finance and its language rested all but disappears as a political force and as new popular movements of the left and of the right squeeze the space in which social democracy would seek to breathe. In a moment of panic, and I think that um, social democracy is in such a prolonged panic, looking to history can help to provide some sense of perspective. So I went back to some of the writings from the 1930s in my own context, which is the United Kingdom. Now, in my context, the UK, the Labour Party, has suffered a number of crushing defeats um, on several occasions in our, our our brief history. In 2015, as most of you will know, we were once again defeated in a general election, and that defeat was shocking in its scale, even if not in its fact. More forgotten and perhaps more perilous was the defeat of the Labour Party in 1931. At that time, when the Labour movement was reasonably embryonic in its formation, the Labour Party was all but wiped out as a parliamentary force and many questioned whether it could ever recover. Surveying the wreckage of what remained, the great center-left British thinker R.H. Tawney remarked that what Labour needed above all else for its reinvention was a creed, not a fixed ideology, not a rigid doctrine, but what he called, quote, a common conception of the ends of political action and of the means of achieving them based on a common view of the life proper to every human being and of the steps required more nearly to attain it." As Tawney also observed in his inimitable way, it did not therefore follow that the party should, quote, offer the largest possible number of carrots to the largest possible number of donkeys. I think Jeremy Corbyn, who was elected as Labour Party leader seven months ago, could not really be accused of that error. Yet nor to my mind does a, for want of a better term, hard left socialist conception of politics, which Corbyn is uh, at least uh, accused of being or embraced as being, depending on your perspective, nor does that address Tawney's challenge of developing a creed which matches our current times, I think. Tawney's observation speaks to me now because we instinctually grasp, I think, the deep inadequacy of the center-left's response to the dominant so-called common sense conservative narrative and the actions of conservative actors around the world. It is not simply that the foundational elements of social democracy now seem somewhat anachronistic. It is that the old left-right schema, which characterizes them in the public imagination, has lost its power for helping people to make sense of what they see in mainstream politics. So in the UK, the critique could run, the world moved on, the Labor Party moved back. The problem is particular to the left, I think. and, And this is why I raise it here. It's not enough to diagnose problems with our politics. Our task here is to think about reinventing social democracy specifically. I think it's particular to the center left because many of our current descriptors of our political identity are fundamentally challenged by the issues that Quinton has outlined. So these are identity narratives that we are of the many, not the few, that we are drawn from the working classes, and that we are basing our our politics on principles of collective action for the common good. The instinct to retain identity narratives which less and less describe a mainstream political or social reality, I think lies at the heart of social democracy's current quandary. So the challenges that that raises are many, um, but I have about three minutes left, so I'm just going to try and address one, and it's one that I've had most time to think about. For five years, I worked as a community organizer And I then then acted as a national director, directing teams of organizers. And what we were essentially trying to do was to disrupt the way in which the UK Labour Party organized and the way in which it built relationships with the public. Within that, I want to take the question of party membership as a case in point. So the starting point of the Labour Party and other center-left parties of Europe is this. How can we as parties attract more members? The preceding questions, including whether a mass membership model is fit for purpose and what other forms of organising might further the democratic aims of participation, those questions go largely unasked. There's an assumed need to grow our membership. And in my experience, this tends to drown out questions of reciprocity. Why would a person join a party and what should that party offer in return? So in reinventing a sustainable organisational base for social democracy we might do well to resist the urge to decrease the cost of membership and address instead the question of how we increase its value in other words just as the old paradigms through which social democracy was conceived are now inadequate i would argue that so too are the organizational models because they don't recognize the shift that's occurred from broadcast to conversation from trustee models of democracy to ones of agency, and from five-year cycles of representation to a real hunger for politics, which is an ongoing transformation. In most cases, and including with Bernie Sanders, answers to whether and how parties of the center left should seek to build movements and or pursue institutional democratic renewal are not being fully answered. Meanwhile, back in London, The repeated trap of the UK Labour Party in recent years has been to conflate these two aims, the building of movements and the renewal of democratic institutions of the left, such as the party structures, and to appropriate the organizing tools of one purpose for a different end altogether. I want to say just one final word on a related topic, which is technology, which once not so very long ago was heralded as the the savior of progressive politics. And in thinking about this talk, it was with some surprise that I realized in conceiving of the reinvention of social democracy, I find very little evidence to suggest that new technology fosters coherent or sustained programs of change. My point is not that technology is bad or any other such simplistic conclusion. It is rather that technology must be viewed with a realistic appraisal of its limitations not least in terms of its organising potential. Technology, after all, is not a coherent programme marking a direction of travel. It is only a set of tools. And before we use those tools to help us build our vehicle, we must know what it is we are seeking to construct, and whence it is that we want to travel. Such work takes courage, and it takes imagination, but it cannot be short-circuited. As R.H. Tawney himself would say, the creed must come first.
3: So what are we to make of the Sanders campaign? Uh, and as the um, American voice uh, of this panel, with Marshall as well, I uh, get the uh, privilege to try and describe, uh, from, particularly from the point of view of advocacy, organizations, and the broader institutional uh and movement context that the Sanders campaign now is the centerpiece of to some to a large degree. Um, And the starting point being that the Sanders campaign has run on the slogan of political revolution and I believe centers itself uh, proudly in the tradition of social democracy. Interestingly, one of the values um, that come through on the Sanders campaign go beyond policy prescriptions, but actually can be seen in a renewed focus of participation, leadership of volunteers, and a commitment not just to the candidate and the staff uh, of that candidate, but actually a new new, um, uh, experiment in electoral organizing that actually puts volunteers of the campaign in charge of accountability to each other. So while the Sanders campaign has a massive email list, a very strong top-down broadcast way of organizing and mobilizing support, uh, they have also encouraged volunteers to connect and coordinate with each other locally and nationally. A couple very brief examples. Um, Leaders of the campaign describe that model as distributed organizing, Um, And note that it is actually premised on volunteers making specific commitments to each other instead of the campaign staff. That means that accountability, even making sure that people follow through on challenging tasks like holding house parties, actually showing up to field uh events making sure that you you do your canvas uh detail ends up becoming a volunteer role. It's not necessarily the staff of the candidate himself that's in enforcing that. It's actually uh volunteers holding volunteers accountable. And the where you would ex- expect some of the most centralized um, perspective from the campaign BernieSanders.com is thought of more as a central clearinghouse. It's a place where you can find volunteer-led and created events um, and you, as well as official campaign events and adjacent to that is a website burnkit.com with 88 official and unofficial web and mobile apps, everything from finding and hosting local events to a, a volunteer-made piece of campaign technology that allows peer-to-peer phone calling tools, to, I counted when I recently looked, four different um, make a fake selfie with Bernie applications that you can do from your own home computer. So these and other in-progress projects are actually publicly available. You can look at what is being created and distributed and engaged on a public Google document. The energy and recruiting ability of the value that comes through in transparency and participation Outweighs any kind of competitive advantage that campaign thinks that they might lose out by being public with their plans. this this is this is different. Um, the volunteers um, that coordinate together aren't necessarily doing it with a staffer in the room. You can go and find a map of uh, online chat rooms where over a hundred different online chat rooms are live right now with people who are volunteers on the campaign uh, without necessarily strong staff support connecting with each other, making decisions, deciding how to promote this particular campaign. From an advocacy point of view, this kind of sheer excitement and engagement is the stuff that I dream about every night, that as an advocacy organization that we would be so lucky to have that uh, strength and that, uh, that amount of energy behind us. Um, And if we had that kind of energy behind us, we might be able uh, to break through in a crowded media environment. So policy reforms, even good and powerful ones, really aren't ever as compelling as a presidential candidate in terms of finding and recruiting volunteers. But it is precisely those advocacy and NGO groups that will need to be strengthened in order to achieve most, if not all, of a Sanders suite of policy proposals. A, A presidency by uh... bernie sanders will face the same challenges that the obama and previous administrations have faced when they shift from campaigning to governing where you actually don't have all the marbles uh... and it takes a strong engaged constituency willing to make demands hold elected officials accountable and hold their feet to the fire in order to move an agenda and there i think is a key challenge catherine's mentioned it as well um, that twice now we've seen uh, a charismatic presidential candidate build the energy and engagement of a social movement in their electoral campaign and yet fall short of achieving um, all of their agenda. And that the fact that we now have a candidate uh, that has uh, in policy platforms and in the actual um, campaigning, many of these values, I think uh, to me both is exciting and a little bit frightening. First, while it is no doubt, a positive that more people are educated on critical issues for our country in my work that would be uh... work on uh... getting big money out of politics voting rights um, and other reforms that we think will strengthen democratic participation um, and it is actually important to note that there's more than one candidate more than bernie sanders who actually has um, a set of uh... policy solutions that we think are up to snuff. we can't let the public believe that the only that this only this particular candidate can actually solve that issue. Um, the Bernie or Bust camp will be difficult to mobilize after November 8th and win, lose, or draw, that's a big missed opportunity to harness the skills and the energy of engaged citizens. It's only when NGOs and advocacy groups have specific power that their policy prescriptions become picked up by candidates. Sanders and uh Clinton's campaign finance and voting rights platforms look remarkably similar to a set of platforms that a uh, a collection of nonprofits put out uh months uh months and months ago uh and have been aggressively promoting. B- among those reforms like automatic voter registration were developed by groups uh in the nonprofit sector like Demos and the Brennan Center for Justice ye- and they were years in the making. So a focus on the electoral as the way that progress, especially on Democratic reforms happen, is the tail wagging the dog. Social democracy and social democratic values can actually, and this is my last challenge here, quickly become weaponized in a highly partisan atmosphere. So today, 36% of Republicans believe the Democratic Party is a threat to the nation's well-being. 27% of Democrats feel the same about Republicans as soon as a leading party member steps out to promote an issue including something as sanguine as increasing access to voter registration through reform like automatic voter registration it immediately becomes a political football now i think the good news uh, is that as a community we seem to have learned at least somewhat from our mistakes and currently there is a very vibrant conversation among progressives from the NGO community Uh, in in the United States about what to do now with the energy and the recruitment that the Sanders campaign has built and how it could be used for something more than just perhaps a permanent political campaign by the candidate, but something that builds the broader network of organizations. We've seen some experiments this way before, including when Howard Dean converted his presidential list into an advocacy group called Democracy for America, which has been supporting progressive causes and progressive candidates. And, of course, the Obama campaign turned Obama for America into organizing for America, but in that translation, they lost the emphasis on grassroots leadership and became a distinctly top-down focused organization. Given the experience of the Sanders volunteer, in particular, their leadership when they are responsible for real outcomes, held accountable to each other, and not held accountable necessarily by the campaign staff, gives us, I believe, the best chance at converting social democratic energy generated, the heat And the energy thrown off by this electoral context into more critical, broader movement and reforms. So, that I end with a note of optimism.
5: Great, thank
1: you. We'll open this up to everyone unless you'd like to comment on each other's statements first.
2: Uh, Just one observation actually that came to me that might be useful. So, I'm kind of new to American politics and that this is the first time I've lived here, but the, the Koch brothers, is that right, is that how, thank you. Um, I noticed last week that they have abandoned what I think was referred to as the fetish of the presidency in favor of putting money into state and local elections. That That's their kind of stated strategic direction for the next five years, which is an interesting question tying these two contributions together.
1: Yeah, I think I just want to add uh, one thing, which is I think an important distinction between Uh, mobilizing and organizing, or mobilization and organization. Um, Mobilizing, I mean like, you know, turning people out for a rally or even for a short-term issue campaign, getting a lot of getting a lot of mice clicked, uh, or getting a lot of signatures uh, signed on a petition, versus developing developing, uh, organizational infrastructure based on lateral relationships, not just aggregating individual voices, but bringing people together with the capacity to discern common interests, decide upon them, and act on them. Um, Social Democratic parties have traditionally provided a venue in which that could occur. Um, American parties, at at least the Democratic party, hasn't much been a venue for that for quite a while. And there's a kind of an odd asymmetry in the United States where that kind of organization building seems to be going on more on the right than on the left. Uh, The left has been much more enchanted with mobilization, perhaps because of the appeal of the new technology. And so, in a way, Sanders, we can look at the Sanders campaign as an instance of mobilization. The question is, can it turn into a form of organization? And, And its sustained organizational capacity, it seems to me, that goes to the question of a social democratic. Context within which we can actually deal with broader issues, sustain effort over time, and not just be these flash in the pan yeah. kind of one-shot deals that we see quite a bit of. So I just want to add that into the into the mix here. Uh, but let's go. Yeah, Carmen. Oh, would you identify yourself and where you're from? And yeah. And I should say that this is being recorded, by the way. So being recorded, as right. if you've got to be careful. of no everything Anyway, but right. <laughs> yeah. so okay, all right.
6: I, I just wanted to follow up on Catherine's uh, notion of a creed. Now, I'm assuming, of course, you don't think there's it's going to be an easy thing to invent some creedal thing. And so, uh, I guess I want to probe, like, how do we move towards a public philosophy? that resonates and that can be uh, instantiated, I guess, with a variety of public policies, in fact, that have the kind of feedback effects that Marshall is talking about in terms of enabling communities and stakeholder groups to do serious organizing as a permanent thing, right? Um, And, you know, I guess the challenge for me is that We live in an era when the very notion of public goods, not just because of the conservative onslaught, but because of the huge differentiation in our society of institutions and ways of getting one's needs met, et cetera. So the work of constructing public goods, we often don't take seriously. We often say, oh, well, you know, free college for all, you know, I mean. I won't even go into that, but, um, it, but it's that the challenge of creating the notion of robust public goods that have a certain reflexivity built into them so that we can both deliberate, and sort of Quinton was getting at that, various forms of autonomy and deliberation, but so that we can valorize what Harry Boyd calls the public work of all kinds of people, um, engineers, teachers, you know, etc. But but service workers, namely anybody who, in some sense, labors for, to create something that is, you know, uh, is bigger in what social democracy has always aspired to, I think. I, just throwing it out, I have
1: yeah. no answers. Hmm. Would anyone like to comment? Or we can just, we can hear more.
2: I, I think I would give, um, I, I don't have answers to that. It's part of why I'm here, I think, um, taking um, some of the, Classes I've been auditing are around political philosophy, political theory, um, and are kind of trying to strip this really back to basics. I think insofar as I have an answer, it's paradoxical because I want a creed, but I also recognize that that creed will only be developed as something that is relevant through action, right? So it comes through baby steps. So my answer would be we take our first step. And that's both in terms of content, so substantive steps around policy, but it's also in terms of process, which I'm interested in, by which I mean openness. You know, it's, it's, it's ironic that, that's, you know, I know this is... But, but for me, it's, 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 there's a certain irony that I need to come here to be able to have the expanse of thinking and the ability to test my thoughts in ways that might well be wrong, that I don't have in my own political environment, where what I say, by virtue of being a political actor, is instrumental. Right. So I suppose what I'm doing by being here is testing my expressive capabilities, in a way that I don't have space to do within my own political context. What I would like to see is that space, that openness, be it debate, be it reevaluation, um, opened up within the political context in which social democrats want to act so i think in my case that would be a call for the labor party to proactively create that space and stop pretending that we have answers to these questions or that critiquing the other side in inverted commas um, and their response is sufficient because it's it's patently not um, and, and on top of that, I would say, and, and Roberto Unger um, works a lot in this space, the idea that we have sufficient answers in terms of a creed by merely presenting humanizing facets of a conservative agenda, it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. So I would like to see that sort of space created.
1: That's what the Ash Center is for. No. Right.
5: <laughs> Ellie, <go laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Thanks. Yeah. Hi. Uh, I'm Heli Mishael, I'm
2: at the MPP program, first year. And you talked about uh, participation, of political participation. You also talked about the um, uh, polarization and um, how a lot of
0: the changes have happened on the national or the local levels. And I wanted to know your thoughts about how a two-party system uh, facilitates or doesn't facilitate Uh, Citizen participation
2: today. Yes, I've just taken Quentin's course, and it's a very biased question because of that course. Uh, Comments.
1: Who wants to? Quentin, you want to take that because it's your course. (laughs) (laughs) Enlighten the rest of us.
4: (laughs) I mean, that's what I was trying to hint at: was (laughs) that if we take a center-local conversation more seriously, (laughs) it means opening up and thinking about uh, multi-partyism, and thinking about the institutional reforms that are required, and that to think that a healthy social democracy may be a divided social democracy, that there may actually be multiple parties on the left competing in a robust way to drive a left agenda, um, and that um, those types of institutional reforms seem, of course, much less likely at the national level, In especially in the US, but in a lot of countries, but more, much more likely, potentially, um, at the local and state level, so that it's, um, it's partly coming up. The social democratic pr- project of reinvention is achieving a creed that, I guess, is integrative in the sense I was talking about, that it's integrating across the divisions um, and the grappling with the dilemmas of those divisions and different preferences that are inside of those divisions and what it means to bridge those. Um, but that it's also about, which I don't think um, social democracy has been very good at, is thinking strategically, but also intrinsically, about um, institutional structures that are that facilitate. So we thought a lot about uh, the organizing, or the mobilizing, or the not of. Um, and w- how that fits into creed production or electoral power, but we—I don't think we've been as imaginative in thinking about the broader institutional, broader institutions and structures that are part of getting people excited and turning them out and getting uh, a, a common ground.
3: Well, uh, I think it's um, in the in the American context, the parties are clearly troubled. Uh, we are potentially going to see two brokered conventions in the presidential context, and it is, uh, I think, in large part due to the advent of social media and the ability for people to connect directly with each other, that the party, uh, af- the abilities of parties um, are, are sh- rapidly shifting and changing. And media theorist Clay Shirky has described the uh, the insurgent candidates, the Trumps and, and the and the Sanders, as using the parties as host bodies. To actually create uh, their campaigns, it's not so much that the parties have the uh, have the same type of power and authority, but because the the change of how people can connect, this the ability of technology to raise uh, large amounts of money from the grassroots very quickly it has just dramatically shifted how things, um, how things are shaped. So I, I think that that becomes an important perspective in how we think about the limits or the advantages of something like a, a two-party system here in this country, that uh, their power has just been curtailed very, very uh, extremely in this particular election.
1: Yeah. Well, just to comment uh, on that, um I mean, actually, the, the turning of parties into franchises, yeah, that, that, uh, that actually goes back to the 70s uh, and 60s and even the 50s. So I don't know that it's a, a, a radically new development uh, because the hollowing out of political parties in this country goes a lot to sort of the role of finance and money and sort of the entrepreneurial candidacies and so forth. But, but the reality is that a first-by-the-post electoral system makes two parties. And uh, and as long as we have a first-by-the-post instead of a PR system, we have two parties. At the national level, well, and, and at the local, there's a few, you know, like fusion efforts like New York and so forth. But I mean, so there, there are some very real institutional constraints that would have to shift in order to be able to move to. And, and the point about incentives, I think, is very important because, you know, one thing we know from voter turnout stuff is that People turn out because they're being motivated to turn out by somebody usually, not just on themselves and political actors have incentives to turn people out when they have a chance of winning, Uh, you know, which is sort of why unless you have a chance at 50% plus one, you have no incentive to mobilize anybody. And so, or why in states that are not battleground states, there's no incentive to mobilize for a presidential election because it's 40, 51% equals 100%, 49% equals 0%. So there, there are some real institutional issues there that have to do with the two-party question, I think. But let's get some more over there. Uh, let's go here in the front there and then over there. Yes.
7: Hello. Um, I thought I'd experiment with pushing back on the idea that there is a strategic challenge for um, social democracy and suggest that in terms of the two problems that you kind of raised, uh, Quinton, in terms of uh, the scalar problem, looking at the UK context, I felt that devolution um, under new labor was a kind of movement to try and address that. And um, within that was, was kind of inherently moving towards the more collaborational, um, uh, robust um, form of integrated politics you were talking about. And in terms of the second problem, in terms of the the broader kind of integration, um, I mean, that's essentially what triangulation was trying to uh, engage with. And so if one accepts that those two strategic challenges were in a sense addressed by new labor, could you argue that social democracy in the UK doesn't have a strategic challenge, it actually has a sort of tactical one? Had David Miliband's camp been more tactically effective in 2010, we could conceive of a situation now in which the Labour Party would still be running the UK and there would be a meeting going on probably in the Belfast Centre right now where the Conservative Party was wondering about the future of conservatism. And so I was wondering from a, in terms of thinking about the tactics, whether actually technology does play a key role. It seems to me that in terms of the Tory parties sweeping through the southwest, they were using kind of micro-targeting data, they were Facebook tapping people, they were using very sophisticated technology in a way that maybe the Labour Party needs to think could potentially be in addition to work on the street and calling people up in the phone banks, a tactically effective way of targeting and mobilising large groups of people. And in terms of the tactics within the actual party, um, maybe we don't need to reinvent um, the strategy. We just need to um, just be more effective at getting back to what we were doing 10 years ago.
1: Comment or shall we go on?
4: Yeah, so in, in, if, if we just think about the UK at the level of the regional scale, I think I agree. But when we think about center-local relationships, I don't think there was a settled position. I think that was still a version of a centralized, centralizing approach to bringing about change. Um, I I guess it could be that I'm colored more from the US perspective now. But I don't think that, at least before before I left, which was during Blair's first term, Um, It didn't feel to me, and observing now, that there was integration across the social divide, um, that there was more of, um, Catherine and I talked about this last week, that an increasing appeal to people like me um, and less people necessarily like my parents. um, And that new labor was a party for people like me and less a party for people like my parents. Um, and, and yet people like my parents still exist and have needs and wants, and they're not necessarily getting addressed to my mind by uh, social democracy. Um, but people like me, um, I feel as if my needs and wants, I feel fairly well reflected. And I think that Corbyn, the rise of Corbyn or the whatever appeal Corbyn has, it's because that is uh, reflecting that the fact that that hasn't been settled or that there's this uneasy, there's um, a long period of appealing to a certain set of social actors and not others.
1: We'll go over there, but I do just wanna raise this sort of irony that as close as we've come to a traditional social democratic platform, which is Bernie, has such a profound base among young people, Mm -hmm. uh, not their parents. Uh, that's worth thinking about. i uh, just throw it out there. Oh, so
4: I'm putting myself in an economic insider category, yeah. whereas it's not clear that uh, that's. So I think th- at least the work that's being done on the dualization of economies and where people feel economically secure, I think that's where you see young people. Um, uh, it's sort of rooted in that notion of do I see a future that is brighter or do I see a future where it may be worse? How precarious do I feel my situation is?
1: Yeah, I wonder, it's, I, I, well, let's go back over there. Yes.
2: And my name is Katie, I'm a second year MPP student. Uh, so all three of you have sort of touched on what I'm about to ask, but for me, one of the major challenges to social democracy in the coming years is global interconnectivity. Um, and it strikes me that a lot of our public policy challenges are gonna require global solutions. Uh, So to give the most striking example in recent weeks, it's the revelations in the Panama Papers about the scale of tax avoidance. So I wondered if you could just talk a little bit more about how social democracy can link up better across borders as well as within borders.
4: So I deliberately took that bit out of my scalability (laughs) from local to national to international and transnational. That's exactly where my thinking was going because once I get to thinking through that, it becomes even more difficult for me to figure out the pathway forward, or to figure out what is the set of reimagining of institutions and structures to cope with that in, uh, uh, integration that exists. Uh, so that, that's more I don't have an answer, but.
1: Any other thoughts here on that?
3: Well, I would just I would say to Marshall, one of your points that and the difference between mobilizing and organizing a a mobilization that is global is not that much trickier than a national one in terms of resources and in terms of tactical approach. But the actual work of organizing and of actually crafting and creating connection, you know, there's many more divides, there's space, there's time. Some of those can be solved by technology, but um, it. It leads campaigners towards a place where they focus on the mobilizing and the the rapid reaction and the petition to God knows who uh, about the Panama Papers, and that becomes right. you know more incentivized, and that's you know it, it ends up stopping at that point. So I think you, right. it's a it's a much trickier problem, uh, and the only solution that I that I think I can see is focusing on the power and that you can build in, your, in home countries and especially those that have you know, economic and political power globally.
1: Well, Europe's being tested right now, huh?
2: I think in terms of the creed question, um, I, I don't see any necessarily fundamental distinction between Different countries and social democrats within them, as to how they would address those questions, because I think those are more fundamental or philosophical yeah. questions. To go to your point, I think then there's going to be wide variety in terms of the content in a given in a given place. Um, and, and just on Alex's point, I mean, I think New Labour. I would I would lean more towards what Quinton said. I think New Labour was an intensely political project um, that created, you know, an, an uneasy tension among competing values and interests rather than settling those questions that would be the lens through which i would look at it and i think we're seeing that play out now
5: thanks Uh, my name's james i'm active in um... politically here in the cambridge area Um, i'm with marshall on this idea of you know let's not all just be i voted for bernie sanders uh, but not, not that inspired by his his candidacy, although I'm inspired by the youth participation, certainly. Um, But I'm with you, Marshall, on this idea of, you know, so what is going to be left when his campaign is over? What sort of organizational capacity can people actually build? And I'll give one example. I participated in the caucuses last Saturday to elect delegates to the National Convention for either Hillary or, or Bernie. I went to the one to elect one uh, some one male candidate, two female candidates in the seventh congressional district. We met in Everett. And the person who we ended up electing, I voted for, uh, is a fellow by the name of Rand Wilson, who st- was instrumental in starting an independent organization called Labor for Bernie. Now, the same question could be appla- app- applied to Labor for Bernie. Well, what is that going to end up being? What is that going to end up sort of being turned into? And I guess I wonder if anybody has any examples, other similar examples that are going on in relation to the Sanders campaign, and what, sh- what do, does anyone think should be the form of that kind of organizing, rather than just acknowledging that it would be nice if it were to take place. But what, what should we who would like to see something uh, like that be, be trying to do? And it inevitably raises the question of, well, inside or outside the Democratic Party, and you know we had we had Jerry Brown in '92. We had Ralph Nader going with the Green Party, and that didn't work out very well. And the Greens haven't worked out very well. And then we had Dennis Kucinich, and he didn't. He rolled up his tent and said, you know, let's all go back inside. And now we have Bernie Sanders, and there's a lot of concern that this is just going to be okay. Everybody, let's all go and vote for Hillary. So, any thoughts on any of that?
1: And, and how do we bring it around the
3: question of social democracy? But, go ahead,. Um, so where I see there's two there's two or three kind of main places where this can go with the Sanders energy in the Sanders list. So you can create your own organization, you can keep it in the Democratic Party, or we can imagine something new, uh, and something new could be an offer for the people who have that experience, who had that energy, who are committed and interested in those issues to link up with existing organizations and existing campaigns. And the list that the campaign maintains itself It is it is an immense source of power, both money and influence, and it is uh, in some ways it is the ring of Sauron, right? Like (laughs) you would maybe want to actually cast that ring into the fire uh, and let that list and those people find their own place in the current context and the current ecosystem of advocacy organizations, because you would actually achieve greater political power through outside. Work uh, holding elected officials feet to the fire, whoever they may be. But the temptation to own and manage that list and that power is just so great. It is it is very difficult to imagine how we'll be able to rest that or, or have a you know a, a hero a golem rise and actually move that <laughs> ring back into uh, into the fire. Excellent.
2: So I think the question is obviously different vis-a-vis whether he wins or he loses, right? So so I think um, I think what something Marshall and I talked about is with the Obama campaign and then the Obama presidency and the loss of energy and part of the explanation for that lying in the fact that he won and in what sense would a political actor with with you know a a formal office wish to create a counter-movement which would hold him to account I mean that's like Turkey's voting for Christmas right it's um, so so there's there's that question but then there's the question around is that a British saying do you guys? Yeah, yeah it? it's oh, okay. not anymore.
1: It's <laughs> 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 we eat our turkey
2: at Christmas, uh, <laughs> um, you know, And then there's a separate question about whether he loses and what he wants to do with that energy, um, and, and whether the extent to which in a, um, in a presidential campaign where if Hillary wins, she may not win the presidential. You know, that, that's by no means a foregone conclusion. To what extent do you want to mobilise that energy in some way to hold her to account, potentially at the expense of undermining her ability to achieve electoral success? And so those are some of the political realities which I think perennially undercut this idea of losers leveraging their movement power in order to hold their own side to account. So it's kind of a a double bind, right? Because by the time you have a Hillary presidency, some of the energy that was created through the Bernie campaign may have dissipated to the extent to which it's less useful in holding a a democratic presidency to account.
1: There's an interesting new book by Dan Schlossman on uh, the relationship of parties and movements uh, in the US, uh, historically and comparative. It's it's, uh, anchoring, anchoring.
2: When movements anchor parties. When
1: movements anchor parties, yeah. Very, very interesting. And one of the arguments, and so he does a whole historical comparison, Democrats and Republicans, close look at labor and Democrats in the 30s, close look at evangelical churches and Republicans in the 80s. It's really a, a nice study. But one of the arguments is that unless there's some sort of supporting infrastructure outside for a movement, then it doesn't sustain. It can't sustain. It, it either gets, influences the party and dissipates or may get absorbed. And so like the, the, the evangelical church, I mean, the church is power, an ongoing institutional foundation for uh, evangelical right-wing politics. The labor unions were certainly a, an ongoing institutional foundation for labor politics and Democrats. And, and, and even things like the Christian coalition, the moral majority, Organized infrastructures that then took over party operations. So the question is, what's this infrastructure, and who builds this infrastructure, and where is it situated? What does it look like? Is it Planned Parenthood? I mean, Planned Parenthood could certainly be such a thing if it went political. Uh, but um, that, that's part of the part of the issue. It and seems
2: for what? And I would add to that: for for what are Bernie's supporters mobilized to act beyond yeah. a Bernie presidency? Right. So it, it's a quick question, but it's also a coherence question. Because if there isn't a coherence of self-interest and motivation, yes. then there's dissipation. And again, that's a bind.
1: And, and the elusiveness of an economic justice, sustainable movement. I mean, because we had Occupy, and it went up and back. And now Bernie is all in the name of economic justice, but it has this big youth base to it. And of course, people of color are not particularly part of it, you know, which, is, which is another particular interesting irony, maybe, maybe not, but certainly significant factor so but it does feel like a moment of opportunity (laughs) you know the question is how to how to give it form
4: the the question i have again comes back to this issue of scale is if um the scale at which you're trying to achieve success in the current period and maybe for a long time to come the intermediary structuring organizing mechanisms are gone and may not be coming back then what does it mean to try to achieve those types of outcomes, um, does it actually mean both, in, in in the one sense, strategically to achieve those outcomes, there just has to be a fundamental change in thinking about the level at which those can be achieved? Um, and then the second is more intrinsic, non-instrumental. It's that if social democracy cares a lot about equality, but also about empowerment and autonomy as values driving, then, and that's part of the other part of the organizing and bringing people together, is does that not also push the conversation towards a different scale of politics? Because achieving that at a continental level, or even at the level of a large country, like in a European context, is just, may be structurally very difficult now.
1: Oh, one of the, I don't, I don't want to,
4: I mean, one of the, uh,
1: Thea uh, Scotchball has an interesting recent paper on uh, the Koch brothers, which sort of um, documents the significance of the, uh, not, not the money, but the, stru- the personnel structure, uh, local by state, by state, by state, uh, and the whole state by state strategy. But it's a national strategy, yeah. but it's enacted at a state and local level, because that's where the opportunities are. And that is a pretty traditional American pathway, is to sort of act locally and state and then sort of, yeah, and then, and then eventually uh, try to turn it into a national thing.
4: But if intermediate organizations on the left are weaker, yes, then they are. it may mean that the, the conversation around scale is different on the left versus the right mm. because you're trying to think through mm. what you have or don't have. One other um,
3: point to make is the role of money in politics. We talked very briefly about the Koch brothers, but you get a better return on investment at a school board or a local election or a state election if you ha- have the ability of entering uh, large amounts of money in, in that system. So, you know, there are, I believe that there are structural reforms that could dramatically change the conditions in which, you know, I think Quentin is is right. We have... At least now in this election, the the currency of a popular Democratic candidate that is barnstorming around the country, that's the right uh, venue for this, com- you know, for the for the left to play. And we are there's significant challenges on the state and local national uh, state and local level until we are able to tighten up some of the structural changes that. Uh, uh, the ability of dropping big amounts of money or the gerrymandering uh, that, that can happen in those districts.
1: Well, but one, one real uh, success of the Bernie campaign has been the fundraising. I mean, it's phenomenal. I mean, and so much, such a skill, and it's not PAC de- you know, super PAC-dependent, and it's sort of a, it sort of puts a a lie to the whole claim that, oh, it's only the you know, it's the money of the conservative movement that is so powerful. I mean uh, he, it's phenomenal what he's accomplished from small donations at a massive scale.
3: Right. It, so the in, in some sense the effect of big money in politics is seen least on the presidential context. And you can see and you can see its power even you know more strongly on the on the smaller the smaller context that you're involved in. And you know it it, it would be hard to see people raising that um it would be I, I'm optimistic but the you know the Amount of um, energy and media coverage that goes to a Sanders presidency helps you raise that small dollar in a way that you, it's harder to for a state, a local, or a school board kind of election.
1: Uh, let's see. We'll come back to Carmen if there's nobody who hasn't spoken yet that wants to. Carmen. <laughs> <laughs>
6: All right. Uh, let me throw in, uh, I don't know kind of a, dis- a challenge, and this is a challenge to creed and policy. So just take something like health care and climate adaptation to policy issues that we can't get away from. Health care in the U.S. We have a huge way to go, of, of course, to universality and healthy community strategies, etc. public health. Absolutely. We also have a very, an inbuilt uh, accelerator of spending medical costs for people like me, especially if I live for another 30 years, which is that our technology, uh, et cetera, science are proceeding at a pace. How much healthcare should be spent on elder generations, you raised the it's, the deficit and the, the projections are, they're not sustainable. At the same time, so social democracy has to confront, it's not, we're not just talking about basic healthcare in the 1940s, we're talking about supersized healthcare and people even wanting to live forever and institutional forces pushing it in that direction. And then we have an issue like adaptation to climate change, which from everything we know will take unbelievable investments in infrastructure not to mention new forms of public engagement to deal with all the disruptions of that and i don't think that's just the old form of either organizing or mobilizing so i'd love to see you know creative social democratic thinkers say you know it's not just like we add to this area we add to that area we get a tweak you know we get a grander there are trade-offs there are there are things we need to bang our heads against the wall for now and for decades and you know and it's sort of why I'm skeptical of pardon the expression but the kind of knee-jerk social democracy that what Bernie represents that I'm not saying there's a great energy there and all kinds of good things that I would support, but if we're stuck there, we're, we're going to lose.
1: We're just going to keep losing forever. We, we're, we're supposed to wrap up in five no, minutes. No, and that
6: should have been a more positive note. We need to <laughs> grapple oh, with
1: it. Yeah, and, and, and we're hopeful that, yes, but no. Uh, we're supposed to wrap up in about five minutes, so maybe uh, we can both respond to Carmen's challenge, which I think is a terrific challenge and I think a really important one to respond to, as well as concluding comments that each of the panelists would like to make. And uh, I can
4: respond. I will have to think about the concluding comments. Yeah. Um, So when I was talking about the integrative capacity of social democracy, what I had in mind was exactly having larger conversations that involve trade-offs, that involves bringing groups together who are different and figuring out what it means to come up with a set of policies rooted in a social dem- democratic vision, uh, but inside that vision is integration and disagreement and managing through disagreement. And um, so when I think of some of the countries I know better, like the Nordic um, democracies, that's what I have in mind when I think of those societies as being social democratic societies, even though maybe so- the social. Democratic parties inside those social democratic societies may not be that way inclined. But the system, writ large, operates by trying to integrate across multiple groups with quite different economic structural positions and disagreements to try to arrive at um, outcomes that are balanced, um, that are taking seriously concerns about climate, and actually on those topics. They've been pretty good at those types of conversations. Cl- climate adaptation and trying to figure out how you trade across groups. But the, um, maybe this is a concluding comment is that I have a lot less optimism that the places we're talking about can achieve a s- social democratic system or social democratic society, that approach to thinking. But a start would be for social democracy itself inside those systems to take that on more seriously. Uh, to take on the challenge of integration, as opposed to representing a certain slice. And then those slices changing over time, depending on the electoral incentives, but actually trying to think through, and at a a more historical period, that's what social democracy was trying to achieve, I think. And we talked about it as this one Mm -hmm. nation-ism. So maybe that, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, so the last time we had, what I would call a foundational conversation in the United Kingdom, um, I've got this one. I can, oh, you. I oh you're
1: that. OK. Is that, is that better? Does it make no, me? you're, you're okay.
2: fine. Um, so the last time we had a kind of foundational conversation in the United Kingdom was probably in the build up to 45 government. And if, you, if I take your example of health, that was obviously the founding of the National Health Service. But in circumstances where we had a wartime economy that was built for radical change in a context of political transformation with a reasonably definable kind of social strata and class that was an identity that Labour represented, etc., etc., and in moments of extreme crisis, all factors of which we currently lack, right? So I guess we're, we're setting ourselves a high bar in terms of political expediency to expect these conversations in a time that lacks those factors um, but nonetheless what you say resonates with me because uh, you're effectively saying you know it's it's insufficient to aggregate um, within concrete constraints right to conceive of the world as we see it now and use that to determine what our what our direction of travel should be and and, and i agree because i think where we end up in that case, and this is what I was trying to set out in my opening comments, is merely ameliorating the worst aspects of what we find before us, and and it lacks imagination uh, in quite a profound sense. So for me, it's not about how we. And I'm not sure if this is a disagreement. It might be, but it, it's not about how we set out policy platforms. It's about first knowing what the hell we're for, and then thinking about what the policy formation within a political project would be to embody that and push it through. So it's it's kind of three things. It's 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 philosophical conception, only then can that be followed by policy, but then that needs to be linked, and this would be my critique of Corbyn, for example, by a realistic appraisal of the political circumstances in which we find ourselves and what is tolerable to an electorate. It's not about bending to an electorate or having an electoral-willing strategy as your starting point. It's the end, but it is a necessary prerequisite for what you're trying to do being in any way relevant.
3: So I'll just say very briefly, um, the two things that I see that are different in the moment we have in the, especially vis-a-vis the Sanders campaign, um, is we have you know abilities to connect over time and space um, that are uh, enabled by digital media that create enormous opportunity we, we may misuse those um, but they certainly create uh, enormous opportunity um, and one of the things that while we have that ability to connect and gather together we're still quite struggling with the ability to deliberate and have actual conversation and disagreement um, in that space so that is a key challenge and then the challenge I believe to um, uh, us as um, folks who are you know interested, especially in the NGO world, in actually harnessing that energy. The other thing that's new is the uh, the the desire and the assumption that as a participant, I get to co-create. Um, I get to help build something that uh, that is lasting. As uh, young people grow up with a social media context, the ability of adding their own voice, the ability of uploading Vine clips and YouTube videos, and being a creator of the conversation is something that is quite a positive and that we need to figure out how to harness and adjust and have and build them into our movements and and build them into the work that we're doing
1: well we want to thank everybody and and thank our panelists but just
3: just before that on the question of Creed
1: uh, perhaps Pope Francis is coming as close as anyone in the world today (laughs) in Laudito Si of articulating uh, actually of articulating a vision that encompasses economic justice Environmental, uh, climate change concerns, and some of these things that have been raised. So sometimes creeds come from unlikely places for social democratic <laughs> solutions. Thanks very much to our.